Successful Performer Cast, Episode 43. This is the show that interviews one full-time professional entertainer per week with the goal of inspiring and equipping those who are working to make the leap themselves. This is the Successful Performer Cast. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Successful Performer Cast, the show that interviews professional entertainers to inspire you, our listeners. Be sure to pick up your free show booking form that I've put together for you. It's a great tool that will help you keep track of all aspects of your show and help you get everything you can out of it in order to improve your act and grow as a performer. Pick it up at SuccessfulPerformerCast.com slash booking sheet. Also, visit our Facebook group where you can go for more inspiration, to interact with other listeners, and to post questions and help each other out with any business challenges you might have. It's a closed group right now, so you'll have to request entry, but don't worry. I'll let you in. I promise. You can get there at SuccessfulPerformerCast.com slash FB group. And please send me feedback. Let me know how I'm doing. If there's anything you think uh, would make the show better, or if you'd like to see somebody specific interviewed, drop me a line at ks at successfulperformercast.com or hit me up on the social networks. Finally, it's time for me to give away a book. In the last episode, I interviewed magician Doug Shear, and we decided that we would give away one of his books, Entertaining Education. A Complete Guide to Creating and Performing Educational Magic, a $75 value to one of our listeners. The requirements for entry were for you to leave a comment on his show notes page telling us who your favorite interview was and one thing you learned from it. Now I've gone through all of the entries and I'm happy to congratulate Tommy Johns as our contest winner. Tommy, I'll get in touch with you. Congratulations. Now, let's get to the good stuff. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show a wonderful entertainer. Justin Willman is a magician, actor, comedian, TV host, and all-around fun guy. He's been a regular guest on TV shows like The Tonight Show, Ellen, Rachel Ray, and Chelsea Lately, as well as hosting the Food Network's Cupcake Wars and Disney Channel's Win, Lose, or Draw. You may have also seen him on such shows as Gilmore Girls and Disney's The Sweet Life on Deck. In addition to all of this, he's been touring his comedy and magic show, Tricked Out, around the country to great success and acclaim. With all this going on, I'm amazed that he was able to find time to talk to me for this interview. Justin Willman, I am super excited to have you as a guest on the Successful Performer Cast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Chris. That was the best intro I've ever had. <laughs> I'm going to save this recording and use it in my live shows because that's better than most hey, uh, random go. MCs. Thanks, man. Yeah. Honor. And it's way better than having that laminated cue card, right? That too. That too. <laughs> I can't even see you reading it. It's great. I know. Whew. Good times. So let's uh, start off with a little bit of inspiration. Justin, do you have a favorite success quote or a specific mantra that you live by? Uh, man, there's a lot. I have a lot of quotes. Um, let's see. I mean, some of the my favorite cliche ones that I love are, you know, be yourself because everyone else is already taken. I love that one. Mm-hmm. Just in general, but when it comes to business stuff, you know, um, I, I kind of highlighted a couple of my favorites. Um, stop chasing the money and start chasing the passion. 
Mm-hmm. That's a t- Tony Shea quote. He's the Zappos guy. Um, and then James Cameron has this great, great quote where he said, if you set your goals ridiculously high and it's a failure, you will fail above everyone else's success, hmm. which yeah. I like. You know? And then on the, same, on the same kind of token, Winston Churchill said that the success is walking from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that a lot of my favorite success quotes involve failure. Yeah, you know that that's actually been kind of a, a theme that's uh, uh, worked its way through some of these interviews, you know, and and how failure isn't isn't necessarily like the end of things, you know. You know, um, I couldn't I couldn't agree more because I really don't think of anything as failure. I think of it as just, I'm, I mean, I wouldn't even say trial and error. It's just mm-hmm. sometimes the world isn't ready for what you're offering at that particular time. Yeah, and it's not that you failed or that it was a bad idea. It's just that the world wasn't ready for it, you know, and maybe re- reformat it to something that uh, that people are ready to take in. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting paradox. Yeah, yeah. Could you uh, take a moment? Let's go back to the the second quote that you said, where when you uh, shoot for shoot for the stars, or what? Yes. What was that again? Well, it was James Cameron. He said, right. "If you if you set your goals ridiculously high and it's a failure, you'll yeah. still fail above everyone else's success." Could could you uh, maybe tell us a, a time where you were shooting really really high and didn't reach that goal, but still attained something really really good? Yeah, I mean, I've been living in LA for twelve years now. So, in addition to kind of just the comedy and magic gigging, you know, mm-hmm. I've been trying to pitch lots of different TV shows along the way. And many of those TV shows, uh, well, I'm gonna, I will say, all of those TV shows, except for my most recent endeavor, did not get picked up. I mean, in the sense, were failures. They were passed upon. People said no. Um, uh, you know, just pitching different various magic projects over the years, and also just, I think, the whole sense of auditioning in LA yeah. uh, is you have to be very prepared for failure. Um, most. You know, when you live in, you know, living in LA, I would go out in a lot of hosting auditions and I think I would not get 99% of those. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally you, you somehow get one, and, like Cupcake Wars was one of those random auditions that I didn't think I was, I thought I totally botched and it was a, you know, it was a loss. It was, it wasn't going to happen and then it randomly happened. But I think all of those failures, so all of those auditions or all of those pitch meetings and all of those chances where you put yourself, you know, you put yourself out there. You you put your your pride on the line, mm-hmm. and maybe they said no at the time. All those people remember the meeting, and all those people remember you, and they remember that maybe what you pitch were pitching then wasn't right, but they remember that they like you, and they keep you filed away in the back of their mind. Especially if you're able to handle the no with grace. You know, yeah. if you're able to be professional when there's a potential yes or when there's a hard no. And so many times that those people that you pitch to are the people just in broad terms that you maybe were trying to book a gig with, but you know, it was out of their budget or they just said, no, they remember the fact that they liked you. And when they're those same people are later in a position of power at a different place, they'll bring you back and they'll hire you. And so many of those gigs that I've gotten came from people who I had gotten no's from. And I think that, uh, the the reason why they come back is because they, they were like, you know, he, you know, he wasn't crushed by that. No. And he's on to the next. And, you know, uh, it'll work out eventually. And, and uh, it, it's really all about planting seeds. Rarely will somebody book you for the first time when you are pitching them on the first time. You know, a lot of times it's just when the, you have to be at the right place at the right time. And 
And I think that goes across all businesses. It's just a matter of, you know, nurturing those relationships. Yeah, yeah. So what what entails pitching an idea to to people like this? Yeah, so let's see. Let me take a let me think of a specific Well, here here's a specific example because this is the most recent example for me. Um I started doing this um kind of magic variety show called Sleight of Mouth. I started doing this at a uh, at Nerd Melt, which is a comic book shop slash theater in LA. And it's kind of like an incubator. It's just a great live venue, but a lot of people use it as a place to incubate an idea and see if it takes off and gives you a chance to showcase that idea to people who will potentially, you know, want to make it a TV yeah. show or a web yeah. series or whatever. So, and I had previously done another one here called Magic Meltdown. Right, which I remember that. Magic variety show that I, I was hoping to incubate it into a TV show. Uh, it incubated into a web series, and that's where it stopped. You know, it yeah. it did. I guess you could say my my goal to make that a TV show failed, but I made it a web show and created some some content, a lot of which I was very proud of that will live forever, and that that comes in handy later. So then, sleight of mouth, the show, I you know started doing it every month, and uh, you know we would invite my manager would invite certain buyers from networks and decision makers out to come to the show and hopefully dig it and a lot of people came but nobody took the, nobody took the bait nobody you know was on board with it for probably a good year and a half almost 2 years until finally like it was just the right the show was finally where it should be the show was you know it wasn't ready early on and finally it was the right place uh to be seen by the right people and we got comedy central who was the you know my ultimate favorite home yeah. for the show to come out and um and so funny is that the you know like the magic meltdown footage that that previously was a failure, I guess, that didn't become what I wanted it to become, but as a part of my, uh, you know, body of work, that helped give them the confidence to then say, you know, all this stuff that we've seen you do in the past, plus this new show, we'll take the chance and we'll give you a pilot. And we will make this sleight of mouth show a pilot to potentially become a TV show. Wow. So that's yeah. the most recent, you know, process. So we got them to come to the show so they could see it. And then we had a, you know, a formal pitch meeting which is an awkward setup, which was, you know, later that week where, um, where we would sit down and we'd talk about how we'd see this show that they saw becoming a TV show and how it could be a, 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 you know, a series and why we think it's so great. And hopefully we think you would, you know, we think, we hope you think it's great too. And, uh, that's kind of how that process went. And that was the first time I'd ever pitched a show where it, where we got a yes. Now we didn't say, they didn't say, yes, we're going to put it on our air. They just said, yes, we'll, we'll buy a pilot and we'll pay for, you to you know show us what one episode would look like, mm-hmm. and uh, so there's a lot of these little road. It's a long process, but a lot of these little roadblocks along the way. You have to be prepared for it to take a long time. You yeah. know, it's a slow. It's a slow game. Yeah, and so yeah. your your magic meltdown meltdown videos weren't necessarily a failure. Then they it, it kind of ended up being a stepping stone uh, or or a step into this uh, this other uh, venue. Exactly. You know, I think. If I and I didn't go into it thinking like the only reason I'm doing this web series is to make it a TV show. I went into it thinking I want to make something great for for just for this thing right now. You know, I I I think if you go into anything doing it for some ulterior motive because you want it to become something else, you're not really giving it. You know, you know, you're not really living in the moment with it, but you're not really giving it all. All you know the attention. You you just want it to, right, yeah. you know, you want to work hard for something to be what it is here. And if it should become something else later, or should become the reason that somebody hires you for something later, that's just icing on the cake. 
but but yeah, that you know those videos being there, showing a you know just a body of work, I think were um, were uh, just gave a little bit of peace of mind to a buyer that you know they're not taking as much of a risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's take a moment and uh, step back a little bit into the life of Justin Willman. Could you talk about how you transitioned into performing full time? How did that play out for you? Yeah, man. I think, I mean, I've got that same story that most of us have, which was, you know, for me, it was in junior high, getting bit by the bug, getting obsessed with magic. And then at the same time, somehow, uh, also like getting obsessed with, I think I read my first Tony Robbins book in junior high and just realizing that, you know, if you want to make something for yourself, the, the best way to do it and, and maintain power over it is to do it yourself, you know, come up with some sort of entrepreneurial endeavor. And, uh, and I realized, you know, pretty quick that magic is a great way to make money and love what you're doing. So I set up a, you know, started doing kids shows and schools and, you know, did the whole business cards and, you know, had my own little cell phone line that was for business calls and tried to be a little businessman. And, and that was um, really, it was really just because I really love performing and I want to have as many places to perform as possible because I love it. But the best way to have a lot of places to perform and be taken seriously is to be, you know, treating it as a business and booking yourself gigs. So throughout uh, high school then, you know, I kind of had a kid's birthday party business. Went to college in Boston, went to Emerson College. And uh, freshman year, you know, I kind of like didn't dig in hardcore into starting up a business. But then about sophomore year, I, um, you know, tried to create a, a busy kid show business in Boston, which went really well and kind of coined coined this brand, coined the, the Justin Credible brand, and that kind of became my uh, stage name. And really, I created that originally for to have some sort of a kids show performing name that people would remember. Because in the kids' birthday party market, you know, it didn't really matter that they loved your show. If they went home and they forgot to grab your business card, they don't, you know, they're not going to remember who you were. But if you had a name that they would remember, and luckily I was able to, you know, figure out that, how to do that, that they would you know, they would remember you and recommend you to their friends and, you know, therefore have a, you know, have a great word about business. So that, um, that's how that started. And then kids shows for me were my, were my foundation, my roots. And then through that, I, you know, like everybody branched off into bar and bat mitzvahs and mm-hmm. occasional corporate events. And then later in college, I started doing college, other colleges in the Boston area and traveling around. And, and then basically took my kid's birthday party show that I do for eight-year-olds and adapted pretty much the same material to be a college show. And I just made it a little more edgy and kind of had sexual innuendos when I was blowing up the balloon animals. And, <laughs> and that became like the college show and just incredible. The brand that I really created to be a kid's brand then became a college brand. I was very surprised that it, it worked, but it did for the same reason in that people liked remembering, you know, that name and, uh, and that's kind of where everything, you know, took off. And then I moved to I moved to Los Angeles and uh, you know, started up a kid show brand there and um and then got into the colleges more. And and you know, it kind of was just the same thing repeating itself. It's like I, you know, in St. Louis I tried to create a, a brand in a business and then went from to a bigger town of Boston, tried to reinvent that brand and business and then moved to LA. And, you know, and, and did it again. And then I also got obsessed with a lot of different marketing things along the way. Dave D was a direct marketer who had a course that really transformed my kid show business just into really figuring out how, how to talk to people on the phone and book the gigs, how to place ads, how to, yeah. you know, turn, 
every kid who saw you into now an infomercial to their parents to have you at their party and all those things that worked for a kid's show then became what worked for a college show and then became what worked for a corporate show because they all translate. It doesn't really matter. You know, it's the same philosophies regardless of the market or the audience. Right, right. And Dave D is now with uh, with uh, Dan Kennedy and those guys up over there. I did not know that, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the just in the marketing sign, or is he is it um, Matt? Well? Marketing. He there. There's a there's a group of them, and I get emails from them all the time because I'm I'm on their list. But uh, yeah, um, I think he sold it to Jack Turk, and mm-hmm. now, oh man, I can't remember the uh, Brad Ross has it now. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Brad's a good guy, and then also Eric Paul, his course, and he's he passed away a couple years ago, but mm-hmm. he took a lot of Dave D stuff and really, really specialized it for kid shows. And it was just, I mean, it was great. Like it just helped me really hone in on knowing how to run my business. You know, it was like a great education. Yeah. So what, what kind of, uh, what kind of marketing efforts were you using when, uh, when, when you were doing this? Cause you were taking something and applying it each time you moved. Yes. Um, let's see, it depended on which market I was, you know, trying to be specific to because for a while, for a while, there was a time where I was, let's see, like when I moved to LA, we'll say, um, I would look at the Los Angeles parents paper and see who my competition was. So basically, because I didn't, nobody knew me from Adam. So I was like, okay, how do I make, how do I differentiate myself? I think it was always about seeing what everyone else is doing and then figuring out something to do that they're not doing so that I stand out. Um, Okay. And, you know, so by this time when I moved to LA, a lot of guys in the market had seen the Dave D stuff. Yeah. And so you see all the similar phrasing in all of their advertisements. Yep. <laughs> so what was once what was once like really stood out when you said you were gonna make their kids' birthday party an unforgettable event they'll remember for the rest of their life. When you move to LA, ever you see that word unforgettable a lot. You see hundred percent guarantee. You see all these things that everyone that you know, that now everyone's doing and now you're not special anymore. So I I then tried to take a different approach, which was less about um, you know that uh, that what are they called you know the the buyer benefit advertising the USP mm-hmm. kind of thing, and I created a tagline. I think at the time it was like you know LA's hottest magician or something like that. Um, but I really just made it about a visual brand, you know, creating you know big picture the just incredible brand or whatever, you know, like a magician, but cooler was a tagline that I used for a while. Yeah. And I use yeah. that. I use the, the branding, the image to try to set me apart, you know, because when, you know, I was fresh out of college and I visually looked younger than the other, the other guys that I was competing against. So I tried to use that in my advantage to create kind of like a young hip brand that hopefully parents would, you know, that would stand out to parents more than, you know, the wording of someone else's headline would stand out. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's how I would kind of create a new a new face in the brand there. And then I used that same mentality in the college market. You know, I would go to see what else you know who 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 the other guys were, the other guys and gals, and how they were booking themselves. And then just tried to come up with a new approach. You know, n- never trying to detract from what they were doing. You know, and try- never really about them being competition, mm-hmm. but just about creating you know something that that looked different. Okay, so you you were placing ads in uh, in uh, different periodicals and stuff, or or trade for, journals, or yeah, for you know for birthday parties it was ads in in okay periodicals. for parents and yeah. for parents and stuff, and then for colleges, for colleges it's different because for colleges my business relied on uh, you know having a great college agent who would do the selling for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, honestly, that was a big thing for me. Even when I was doing the kids' birthday parties, 
was if I wanted to give the impression that I was the busiest one in the market, then I didn't think it made sense for me to be the one who picked up the phone whenever they called. Because mm, yeah. I think they would, you know, if, if I'm really as busy as I want them to think I was, and for a little while I wasn't as busy as I, I, as I wanted them to think I was. I needed the work. But if I picked up the phone right when they called, then, you know, I mean, even subconsciously, it's great. It's good customer service that, you know, they get to talk to the guy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's like, well, why is, why is he so available? Is yeah. he, might seem a little desperate. He's that great. Why is he always there when I'm calling? So I, um, early on, hired an assistant, you know, hired a friend of mine, uh, a female friend of mine, because I thought a female voice is, is a, you know, a good, and she was just a great saleswoman on the phone. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be really important because I, I just pay her on the, by the hour. You know, I'd say maybe, hey, maybe one or two hours a day. Can you just check my voicemail and return the calls mm-hmm. and try to seal the deal? And once you seal the deal, I'll take it over from there. But what was really great is that having somebody else on the phone who sounded trustworthy, who was able to brag for you. Yeah. For one, she could say that you're out busy performing, but you know, she's, you know, she can still get back to you in a timely fashion. But it's way easier to have somebody else brag for you and tell them how great you are and how the show is worth the money and here's why, you know, yeah, he's the most, you know, he might be more expensive than the other guys, but here's why he's great. And I feel like that was always really important. So even for the kids shows, that was great. And then in the college market, having an agent who could sell you well and brag for you, I think, uh, was really, a you know, a, a subliminal key to success. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, now, now I'd like you to just take a moment. We've we've all had them. Could you tell us about a specific business failure that you've had? Something that we can all learn from. Hmm. Let me think here. You know, because I because I you know I knew you were gonna based on the previous podcast, and you were gonna ask me that. Yeah. It's so funny. It's not that I haven't had those quote unquote failures. It's just that I never really think of them as failures. I like I said, I just think of them as you know stepping stones. Or just, yeah, or on. just yeah. ahead of my. I mean, the cocky way to turn a failure into a success is just like, well, hey, I was ahead of their time. I was ahead of my time on this one. You know, let yep. me try back later. Um, let me think of a specific failure here. Um, well, you know, I was trying to pitch a show a couple years ago with my buddy James Galea, mm-hmm. who's a great magician. Uh, he's from Sydney, Australia. We met in LA, and we were naturally kind of. We we became friends really quick, but as you can imagine, you know, right when you kind of meet somebody who seems clearly like to be your direct competition, you're a little, you know, weary of them. Sure. And then we became yeah. friends and everything, but we we kind of liked after the movie The Prestige came out, we kind of liked the idea. People seemed to like that idea of like, oh, do you do you compete with other magicians? Is that is that real life? So we decided to create a TV show where we wanted to pitch, uh, called Out Tricked. Where we both, uh, you know, every episode come up with a magic challenge and compete against each other, you know. Um, and we thought it was a great idea. This was maybe th- four years ago. Mm-hmm. And we found a production company that dug it, and everyone's like, oh, you're totally going to sell this. This is going to be great. And we literally pitched it everywhere, and literally everybody said no. And we just didn't understand it. I think what it was is at the time, all these TV shows had to have, you know, they would say, what are the stakes? We need high stakes, you know, like, What's going to happen if you don't if you don't win that episode? And I was like, well, I'll be embarrassed. Like, we'll look bad, but yeah. you know, but like you know, but they were like, there's got to be stakes. Like, like I was like, what do you mean stakes? Like, that's why the shows have all this money at stake that'll change your life, all this kind of thing. And it was just a time. It was just a time in television where, you know, just for the just for uh, you know, uh, bro on bro competition wasn't enough. You know, fighting for integrity wasn't enough. 
you needed to have some high stakes. So it just wasn't the right time for that show. And so that was, you know, technically a failure, but man, I learned so much about pitching shows and just taking meetings. And also, like I said, you know, handling failures in stride so that people have a great memory of you and you plant the seed of like, man, it didn't work out that time, but I, I, I remember that guy. I'd like to work with that guy one day. Yeah. And so many of these things, you just, you know, you don't even remember those people, but they remember you. And when they're in the position to buy a show or cast something or hire a host, you know, you're who they think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That's well, kind would of you, a, uh, Would you good. go back and, and revisit something you've pitched before? Because I, I think that might be something that might stick today, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's true. I, I, I totally would. I mean, it's kind of like uh, um, we, we would pitch that. Now I'm, you know, now I'm kind of caught up in this uh, uh, totally new project yeah. and I give it, give it my all. But yeah, if, if the opportunity arose, that, that totally would be something to revisit. You know, if you imagine like all the TV pilots that, the network shoot, you know, with huge stars and they, you know, they maybe shoot, you know, a dozen of them and they may pick up one or none. And you're like, wow, those were all great ideas that just didn't happen at the time. It's crazy that they don't revisit those or that they don't try to shop around the next year, you know, so much great art and, you know, so many great projects and concepts just get left in the dust because, you know, it just didn't happen the first try. And then people and move on. Yeah, so I yeah. think you're right. A lot of these great ideas, you just need to maybe hold out and wait or retool it a little bit and then bring it back. Mm-hmm. So on the other side of the spectrum, could you tell us about your favorite success? Hmm, let's see. My favorite success. Well, um, the Boston Kids Show Market was a great was a great success for me because that was the first time I kind of really created a booming business where I was able to kind of turn down work and you know, and, and that was really in, in, in part to me being, you know, me taking that Dave D course and being the first one in my market to really implement it and be the leader of that, which was great. And that was a big success. The college market was really special for me because I was able to kind of, I've always wanted to create a brand, you know, although I'm a magician, you know, I always wanted to create a brand that wasn't so I wasn't just competing against other magicians like if they were going to hire a band or if they were going to hire a hypnotist you know I wanted I didn't want it to be like oh we're not going to hire a magician this year if they're going to hire an entertainer I want to be one of the entertainers that they that they consider so I really worked hard to brand myself as you know an entertainer and you know in the college in the college circuit I was able to get they have this uh the magazine the 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 main magazine is called campus activities magazine and I was really fortunate enough to get voted their entertainer of the year four years in a row and that was voted by by the students and for me that was really great because it wasn't like voted magician of the year you know they, you're kind of competing against other entertainers and I feel like I was really able to um convince people that um that a, you know convince people that it's not just like basically defy the label of just being a magician you know and I feel like a lot of other entertainers have been able to do this where it's whatever they are you know comedians or whatever but they're just known as entertainers and uh, for me, that was a, a really big, important success. And then this pilot that I just finished right now and are waiting to hear back, you know, it could very well not get picked up, which mm-hmm. could be a failure, but it's the, it's the farthest I've ever gotten a project. So for me, that's a success, just, you know, being able to get something made. Yeah. You know, even if it never gets seen, that'd be a bummer, but it still feels really great that I was able to get it to this point. So these little successes, some of them failures in disguise, uh, were all really important just to kind of push the push the boulder forward. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your your pilot sleight of mouth—that's that's what it's called, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't know. You, you don't have any idea when that might air, or even if it'll see light of day. At this this point. will. Well, the pilot that we shot will not air. It's, okay. it's by definition a non-airing pilot, which is which is interesting because you know other networks, you know, Travel Channel would shoot, finance these pilots and would air them, even though they're just one-offs, just to see what people think. Mm-hmm. But Comedy Central kind of is very, very picky about what they put on their their air. So yeah. even though they might shoot a stand-up special, when it comes to a series, they shoot a pilot, they test it, they think about it, they pass it around the group, and then if they want to do it, then they'll pick up a series and reshoot everything. Mm-hmm. So okay. what we shot might not air, but um, but uh, it was it was a pretty surreal, you know, experience the whole way. I'm really excited. Yeah. I, I bet, and it's at the very least a step in the right direction. Yeah, you exactly. Know? I mean, for me, it was, you know, and maybe this is, you know, kind of the whole, the whole, you know, all these little steps of my life I've been telling you. Like this pilot represents trying to take magic to a place where it, it hasn't been. You know, on Comedy Central, trying to convince a place that you know hasn't ever dabbled in magic that magic is a viable form of entertainment like i said um for me it's just a success for them to take it seriously enough to shoot a pilot uh and then if it ends up going elsewhere that's great but i just like the idea that we're able to you know take this art form that we love that very often gets pigeonholed uh and and make it seem like you know equal footing yeah, absolutely. And I, I think if anybody could do it, it'd be you. After all, you are like a magician, only cooler, right? <laughs> <laughs> to take I'll a line from your book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Justin, you, you've appeared as a guest on, on numerous shows like The Tonight Show and Ellen. Uh, and this can't be by accident. Could you talk about how you achieved that? Yeah, let's see here. Um, where should we start? Which one would be a good one to start with? Um, how about, uh, how about Wait, Ellen? Kind of, okay, we can go to Ellen. Um, let me think about how Ellen happened. Uh, I pursued them for a while. Mm-hmm. And for a while, like, my, my first regular TV gig was on the Rachel Ray show. Okay. And that was, I mean, probably started in 2006 or seven, And I went on as a magician guest. And this is when her show, before her show even started, um, my manager at the time managed to get me a, uh, meeting with like some of the people who were involved with her show out in LA Mm -hmm. and they didn't really know what her show was going to be yet because it hadn't even aired you know she's a chef so they're trying to figure out what what this show is going to be yeah so we pitched them just kind of a standard you know magician making a talk show appearance but since she's a cook we would do it in the kitchen so I pitched them kind of a a cook a food magic segment I did like card and orange and I did uh uh, a forced card revealed in pepperoni on a pizza, that kind of thing, and and they you know they went for it, and that we shot it before her even her show started even airing, and then it finally aired, and it went well, and then they said yes to another appearance, and then to another, and then I kind of became a regular guest, and it got to the point where some of the appearances I wasn't doing magic, I was just kind of like her correspondent buddy, which ultimately was something I was really going for because yeah, I want yeah. You can, I mean, you'll run out of material eventually if you're always there to do magic. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like dance, monkey dance. But if, but if you're pursuing a goal of them, you know, not loving just your magic, but them loving you, then you don't have to always be, you know, turning tricks. You can, you can kind of be, you can just be yourself. So that was, that was a, a nice, you know, little success. But what's so funny is that. After I moved to LA, I kind of, I, I'm sorry, after, after a couple of years, I didn't really do the Rachel Ray show that much. And I wanted to 
get on the Ellen show because she had a much bigger audience and I've just always been a huge fan of Ellen. And but she loves magicians. <laughs> and she loves magicians. And all these magicians were getting on her show. I was like, oh man. So I sent a, I found an email and sent a link. I sent a link of me on the Rachel Ray show and which I thought would be, be like a good thing. I thought they'd be like, oh, this guy, oh, he's been on TV before. Okay, this is good. It, you know, like I said, it's less of a risk for us. Mm-hmm. But because I sent them a link of me on a, comp- a competing talk show, it basically ruled me out for, it probably took about two years to finally get on the show because <sighs> they didn't want to have me on because they didn't want to be the show that booked the Rachel Ray show's magician. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, uh, and I was like, oh, man, I should have sent them something else. But I didn't think of that at the time. I just thought the people in TV would want to see footage of you in TV. Yeah, and it I makes didn't sense. think about that. Yeah. So uh, it took a while. Finally, I got... Let's see, what did I get? I, I went in for a meeting. I managed to get like a meeting where I showed their talent bookers some some magic. And what was different about Ellen versus Rachel Ray is that at Ellen, it was really all about, okay, what tricks do you have? Okay, what else, tri- what other trick do you have? Right. Versus like, hey, we like you. We trust you. Do whatever you want, which is how it was on Rachel Ray. And on the Ellen show, it was like, we, you know, we've, we've had a guy do a trick like that. What else you got? Oh, well, geez, how about this? No, no, we don't think she'd like that. So for Ellen, it was really all about the trick first, and which which I wasn't crazy about, but it you know it, it kind of pushed me to kind of really come up with some some new things, some twists that uh, that were fresh to them. And it took really about two years of pursuit for them to finally come to see one of my shows. And afterwards, they were like, "Okay, that thing, and then that thing. Let's do it. We'll have our booker reach out to you potentially in the next couple months. You'll get a spot." So that was like a slow build. And once you're in and you had it, you know, once it went really well, I got to come back again. And, um, you know, that was, that was, that was great. She's always been great. And it's crazy how, you know, how many people mention seeing one of the, you know, one of the Ellen show ones versus almost nobody ever remembering anything I ever did on the Rachel Ray show. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. The difference in people's, you know, the fan base of the two, yeah. the two people. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was it you reaching out to them or was it uh, um, your agent or? It was, you know, uh, see, I had a, I, I was paying a publicist at the time, which was a, a very steep investment for very often no return. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for like when I would do a tour or when I would do colleges, I would try to have, you know, basically pay this publicist to when I'm in these towns, reach out to local TV stations and reach out to newspapers to you know, do articles and stories and do morning TV, really just to create fan bases in these cities that I go to. Yeah. So you know, and you're paying a publicist. Sometimes they charge between twenty five hundred or thirty five hundred a month, and you're like, wow, okay, you got me three morning TV spots. I bet I could have gotten those myself if I would have just called. You know, mm-hmm. like sometimes you don't get anywhere. But then there's things where the Ellen Show, a publicist is able to because of their relationships, cut through the clutter. Whereas a booker might be hard to reach on the phone, a publicist can reach that booker on the phone and get them to come out and see your show. So I always look back and think, well, if, if it took me you know, many, many months to get that Ellen Booker to come to the show and have it finally become a TV appearance, then maybe it was worth the investment mm-hmm. for that publicist for all that time. Okay. Well, yeah. And then yeah. Once, once you then have a personal relationship, I think then the, those people enjoy talking to the, the person, the talent, directly. Mm-hmm. But in order to get, you know, to get your foot in the door, sometimes it's better to have someone, like I said, calling on your behalf. Yeah. You know, like having your assistant or a pseudo assistant or your sister, the phone for you, even if you're sitting in the room there, 
just like I said, it's that perception of, you know, this person is, is busy, um, you know, having someone make those calls to get them to come to the show as a publicist, I think probably does the same thing. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about performing magic for a TV audience? Yeah, man. Let's see here. Um, it's a unique animal. You have to come up with tricks that are, well, for me, uh, because I learned early on that the nerves that come in that you aren't expecting and that you can't prepare for mm-hmm. when you're on TV or when you're on live TV really affect um, sleight of hand. It's really hard to do technically difficult stuff reliably when you've got like your, the jitters and your yeah. hands are shaking and you're like, wow, I've practiced this a lot and never felt this way. It's really hard to prepare for that. So for me, I really work to create routines. Either either I'm doing a routine that I've done a million times in my act, like you know, on the Ellen show. I'm sorry, on Rachel Ray, the first time I did card in orange. You know, mm-hmm. so sleight of hand wise, I I force a card, I do a corner switch, I vanish the pieces, the cards in the orange. Okay, I can do a card force. I can do a riffle force. You know, I've been doing that long enough to do it anywhere, anytime. <clears throat> that I was confident in, and the rest is kind of you know, not really vulnerable sleight of hand moves. So that worked out well. But I remember there, you know, when you're coming back for your second or third appearance, you might have to do something that's not as road tested. So if, in that case, I made sure to always do stuff that, um, that I knew I could nail even with jitters. And then I knew that I could, that could be shot from any angle, you know? Um, okay. yeah. it's hard and you know, it's, it's gotta be visual. It's gotta be pretty angle proof. It's got to be something that you can make sure that you can explain to the director how to shoot in a short period of time because they don't have a lot of time to focus on, you know, the the magician who's doing a four minute segment. You know, it's got to be, it's got to be pretty foolproof. And uh, I'm trying to think of an example maybe where it didn't work out well. Uh, you know, one of my Rachel Ray's I did a torn and restored transpo, mm-hmm. David Williamson card trick, where um, you find a card, it's wrong, you tear it up, you have her hold onto the pieces. You find what is the right card, and it switch place, switches places with the torn pieces. Right. And then the, the final phase is that you restore those torn pieces to one whole card. And on Rachel Ray, I got to the part where the pieces switch place, so now the torn pieces in her hand are now her card. And she's like, whoa. And then she takes the pieces and throws them into the audience, and she goes, confetti. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I had to like just kind of not look like anything went wrong and just <laughs> smile on through and uh, skip the last phase. So you, I think you also have to be really flexible. But I think the key is to do stuff, if you can, do stuff that you've done a million times. Don't try to do something new. Mm-hmm. Like the guys who do new stuff on AGT, uh, on live TV, like I don't know. I mean, that's, it blows my mind. Like Matt that's Franco did, did so well doing stuff that you know that he hadn't done on that scale. Uh, and then he's doing it on a live TV, maybe for the first time, and nailing it. You know, it's very impressive. Yeah, and and even the two different venues, even though those are both TV, one of them you're it's a talk show. You're you're uh, you know across the the desk from the host, and on AGT you're on a, a huge stage. You know, mm-hmm. so it's it's like AGT is its own venue in itself these days. It's I mean yeah, I don't know anything like it. You know where you're doing cl- close close up magic for you know the. Uh, the Radio City Music Hall audience is crazy. But I think on the talk show front, like, um, you know, for The Tonight Show and stuff, what really helped is my, you know, I'm, I'm, at Emerson, I majored in journalism. So I would do a lot of reporting and, um, you know, kind of, and then Rachel Ray show doing a lot of like TV hosty things. 
So I think being able to understand the host side of the story and knowing that they are trying to make sure there's no dead air and make sure that there's always a laugh and you know that, you know, he's going to try to chime in whenever you're not <laughs> saying something and knowing that you have to be able to roll with those punches was really, really important uh, to simultaneously think of it as a magician and also as, you know, think of their side of the story as well and that they have to, you know, they've got a director letting him know how much time is left. They've got to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got a lot on their mind. So just making it so there's never a dull moment, make their job easier, make them look, make them look funny and make them look great um, is what ends up, you know, leading people to ask you back, you know, and that's, that's often the goal, I think, is to, to, to do well enough and to, you know, nail it so that you left a good impression and they'll ask you back. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. that's the same in, in, uh, in any, uh, place you're performing, whether it's at a, a restaurant or a corporate gig or on mm-hmm. TV, you always want to make sure the person who hired you, uh, looks great. Exactly. hundred mm-hmm. percent, you know, because someone's always taking a leap of faith. To, you know, you're 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 getting there because someone's taking a risk on your behalf, mm-hmm. and you want to make sure that, that you know you don't make them look dumb for taking the risk. And if you nail it, then you look great, and they look great, and you know everybody's happy. Everyone looks like a hero, and that's what you're going for. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as you can tell, I'm I'm trying to, of course, shine the best light on you, Justin. <laughs> Appreciate. It. Thank you. Uh, with that, what has been your biggest professional challenge so far, and how have you overcome that? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> it's so funny. My my biggest challenge is probably uh, relinquishing control of the booking and uh, yeah. the selling to an to an agent or a manager or even to an assistant. Like learning to not micromanage mm-hmm. um, can be really hard, and, and and I've gotten good at it, but but I'm you know I'm not perfect at it. You know, like when I get an email for a gig and I forward it on to my agent or my manager, I can't help but kind of follow up and with that with my agent be like, so what what happened? Why didn't it why didn't they book it? Did you send them this link? Did you send is there what else can we do? Should I follow up? Like, is it definitely dead? You know? And then I end up wasting my time that I'm trying to save by hiring these people and paying them their percentage and also taking up their time. So I think it's hard because you have to be able to learn to trust the people that are working for you. And it's, there's the only way to learn to trust them is to know that they're doing a good job. So there's a fine balance of, you know, main, you know, maintenance and checking in, but also, you know, having to trust them and let them, let them do what they do. That's probably being the biggest challenge. And, um, you know, and that's, it's a work in progress. You know, I'm always trying to, it's been, it's been a process to finally get the team around you that, that works best. And I'm sure even, even on a small scale, if you're doing kids shows, finding that person, whether it's, you know, an assistant that you hired or, or your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or whatever, like just trusting that they can do what you train them to do is, uh, is a, is a big, uh, a big challenge, but really worth it when, uh, when you see the time it's saved. Yeah. Yeah. So what's worked best for you in growing your business, Justin? Um, <clears throat> What's worked best? I'd say, you know, overall creating a creating a, a brand, mm-hmm. creating um, something that sets you apart from everybody else. So you're not like uh, just a so you're not just a magician, but so that you are you. So people refer to you by by name. So they don't call up and say, Hey, I need to we're looking for a magician for this event. It's like, hey, we saw you, we need you. Yeah. I think that's that's important. And the ways to do that, like I said, are 
um, you know, the mar- having your marketing stand apart, but also having your show stand apart and be, you know, you have the product has to be great. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to do a great show. And I think I learned this to begin with from, uh, my mentor Bonaparte, who's, uh, his name is John Bonaparte, but he performs as Bonaparte in the Boston area. And he's kind of Boston's this busiest, you know, most successful kids show magician for 20 years now. And people, and I would, I would, you know, when I was a sophomore in college, I'd go to gigs with him and I'd see how he would whip the kids into a frenzy like I'd never seen before, but that people just, everyone walked away knowing his name. He probably said his name 30, 40 times in the course of a show, not as like a cheesy thing, but just as part of the patter or that's the, you know, some of the magic words or the kids have to yell this and that. So mm-hmm. people, when they leave, they, they'll never forget that guy's name. And I think that was an important part of creating a brand. <clears throat> and then he also kind of helped, helped sculpt me into seeing the benefit of being the highest priced person in your market if you were worth it, you know. Um, obviously, you can't do that right out the gate. So like yeah. when I moved to L.A., nobody knew me. So I had to, you know, have competitive pricing and maybe find out what the other people are charging and be just a little bit less. But as soon as uh, word got out and, you know, maybe a year in when you've got a strong business, um, being, being more expensive if you're worth it and being able to stand behind that is, uh, has been really important, you know. And that goes from the kids' party market thing to even to colleges and, and so on and so forth, that if people want the best, you have to educate them to know that, you know, something better will cost more and that cheaper is not better and that, you know, the difference in hiring – uh, a $300 birthday party, you know, magician versus uh, somebody who'll do it for, you know, 95 bucks or some, you know, a random magician or clown, some nameless, faceless person that you hire through an agency, yeah. you know, is a roll of the dice. And is your child's birthday party entertainment up to that kind of risk? You know, like how much do you care? And I think, uh, you know, pricing yourself for what you're worth, but also educating your buyers as to why things are the way they are and if they don't end up hiring you after that, that's fine. But I think it's important for people to know that, you know, the entertainment that they book is a very important investment, just as important as the food that they feed at their event or the invitations they use or whatever, uh, and that they should budget enough money to, you know, have the quality entertainment that they, mm-hmm. that they would like. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So lo- looking back, is there anything you would have done differently up to this point? Um... Gosh, you know, I I don't I can't think of anything because because anything differently would have put me in a different place right now, and I'm you know I'm really happy with where I'm at right now, and and even those those projects that maybe didn't come through or gigs that didn't happen, you know, I don't know where they would have where it would have led me if if they had gone through, but <clears throat> but I'm happy with where I'm at now, so I wouldn't I don't think I really would change anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certainly there's things on the personal side, you know, there's, you know, who knows, like, you know, in relationships and in, and in, you know, life decisions, there's certain things that maybe I would have done differently, but even, even there, I don't know that I would change much because all those mistakes kind of, uh, craft us into the people that we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I try not to look back and regret. I try to just, uh, use that and, and adapt it. So maybe if I remember why I didn't get that one, project or business venture to succeed as opposed to me, you know, wishing I'd done that differently. I just file that away and, and apply that to, you know, whatever I'm working on now and and moving forward. Right. Yeah. Could you tell us an interesting story uh, that you've encountered during your performance career? 
Hmm. Well, I'll tell you the most, easily the most surreal thing. And this, I mean, it all comes down to these little things. Okay. So I, um, growing up in St. Louis, and then every year would come back and do this, uh, this little, uh, it's called Chautauqua, Illinois. It's this little summer cottage community. Yeah. And I would do this, I would come back and do this show every year. And I wasn't, you know, I think maybe at the time when I was first doing it, they would, you know, pay me 200 bucks, 250 bucks, 300 bucks every year, get a little higher. Mm-hmm. But then I would, I was living in Boston and then I was living in Los Angeles, but it kind of was an important tradition to me. So it got to the point where I was losing money to do the show because I had to buy a plane ticket. But I just like the idea of every year. And I've still done this every year since I was 13. So now I've done it for my 20, I did it for the 21st year in a row this year. <laughs> it's crazy. It's tradition. Uh, it's tradition. But one of the kids who would see me every year, um, eventually, you know, I'm 34 now. So maybe if she's 10 years younger than me, let's say when I was 20, she was 10. Okay. Yes. She's just a kid. Just a kid seeing me do my show uh, and, and enjoying the show. Um, and then every year, she, you know, these, these kids would see me. But then by the time I was 32, she's 22. And she's a college student in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And she's interning at the White House. And she, they're trying to plan the White House Halloween party. And she's like, oh, you know what? There's this magician who I've seen every year since I was a young kid. Let's see if we can book him. And that's how I ended up getting the gig to do a show at the White House for the Halloween party, which is probably, probably the most surreal and proudest gig I've ever had. And it came from doing this little tiny, you know, kids show every year. Yeah. And it kind of comes back to those, you know, like I said earlier, like you never know what any gig you do will lead to. You're mm-hmm. In every audience, there's someone who will remember you and you don't know where they're going to go on to and where they're going to work and what kind of power they're going to have down the line and who will listen to them. Like you never know, even if it's like it could be anything, you know, all the even volunteer shows, like all these shows that we, you know, it, it's hard to not take some shows more seriously than others. But I, I believe never phone it in. Always do the best possible show you can do in that place at that time. Mm-hmm. Never phone it in. Because phoning it in, people, people can read that. People know. You know. It always bums me out when I hear people going to, who've gone to see Copperfield. And the thing they say is that he's phoning it in. It's just, mm-hmm. It makes me sad because it's hard to hide that. You know? yeah. So the fact that this little show that I did led to doing a show at the White House a couple years ago. And that was a whole crazy experience. Um, we, I managed to, I was shooting Cupcake Wars at the time, but it managed to fall on my one off day. So I took a red eye after a shooting day to DC with my girlfriend and, you know, I took my show and went to the, to the White House, had to go through security, which was the most intense <laughs> TSA security ever, literally taking oh, yeah. my deck of cards and going through every card one at a time up against the light to make sure there weren't razor blades hidden in the cards, yeah. like bomb sniffing dogs and everything. And then, and then there I am in the East Room at the White House and what's crazy surreal is that it's like the, the, the coolest gig I'd ever done, but it really literally feels like a kid's birthday party because it's, you're in someone's living room, you know, and you're doing, it was just a weird throwback to be doing a show that really felt like those early shows that I did. Um, but just so happens that a couple tables back is the president and, and you're trying to play it cool. Like this happens all the time. Meanwhile, you're freaking out inside, but, but, uh, you know, luckily it all went really well. And at that show, I, I mean, it all kind of is a blur, but I guess the, the strangest experience is I, I closed with the floating table and I did kind of a seance scene because it was a Halloween party. 
And, you know, sometimes the floating table, especially, you don't get uh, an audible reaction because people, if you do it right, people are kind of like just sitting there transfixed, like very confused in awe. And I'm floating it. And I always, and I said, you guys act like this happens all the time. And Michelle Obama was like, it's because we're freaking out. And it kind of <laughs> silence and everyone just lost it. And it was just a night, it was kind of nice getting heckled by the first lady. Positive heckling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's that's pretty that's a pretty amazing story, man. And it, it really just goes to show you never know who you're interacting with at any given point, you know? Hundred percent. Like it's really, you know, I mean, my goal in telling that story is not to brag like, oh wow, I did a show at the White House, but it's really like, you know, I didn't get that show because of anything I'd ever done on TV. I didn't get that show because of anything except a kid who is now you know, an intern at the White House remembered shows that that I did for them when they were kids that they liked. You know, it really could have been anybody, but I just happened to be at the right place at the right time and leave a good impression in this kid's mind. And, uh, you know, any of us can do that at any time as long as we make sure to always do the best show we can, never phone it in. You know, remember that this is what people, you know, um, you might not be, you know, you might have been doing this this gig for a bargain rate and you're kind of annoyed by it or whatever, but they don't know that. The audience doesn't know that. Yeah, And, you know, they're remembering you or judging you or savoring this experience based on what you do for them right there, right then. Nothing else matters. So always do the best show you can, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Justin, we're here at the end of the show here, and this is uh, where I just have you recommend a resource and then a couple of books for our listeners. So uh, first off, recommend a resource that you always use, and this could be anything from an iPhone app to something like a prop list for your show. Sure. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty low tech when it comes to the booking and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I use orbits to book my flights. I don't know. I'm a creature <laughs> of habits. I use iCal for scheduling, you know, like be loyal to an airline so you can build up points. Cause really the, the busier you get, the, one of the little pleasures I get is being able to board early because I'm platinum on American airlines, you know, and it's just these little things. Um, but one, one thing that I've been doing lately that I, I found very invaluable is I use my voice memo recorder on my iPhone. And I just set it on the table and I record every show. And I try to listen to them as much as possible. But really, what's great is that sometimes, and you know, you'll say something on stage that you've never said before, and it gets a huge laugh. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the show, you're like, crap, okay, what was that I said? Shoot, what was it? And you can't remember it, and it'll kill me because I'll, I'll lose it forever. So now I try to record every show so that if I remember, oh yeah, during you know, that one trick when I had that guy on stage, I had a killer comeback. I got to do that every time. And you've got your recording there and you can find it. So it's not really to listen to brag about. You know, Sometimes I'll have the phone in my pocket and it'll be muffled and crappy, but it'll be good enough for me to at least hear what I said. And you can also then hear the, the rhythm and the, and the pattern. I think that's, you know, just performance-wise, it's really great to try to listen to your shows. I don't need to see it, really. Like some, you know, if you can video every show, that's great. But for me, uh, you know, as a half magician, half comedian, it's important to you know hear that rhythm and hear what jokes work and hear what jokes don't work as well as I thought they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really important. Awesome. And then book-wise, I mean, magic-wise, some of the books that are the most tattered in my collection are The Magic of Michael Amar. The, <laughs> the big original one is yes. so great. I mean, there's close-up stuff. There's stuff in there that you could do a whole, you know, have a whole strolling career out of. And there's great stand-up stuff. His Silk to Egg is killer. Like, so much good stuff in there. The new Cavany books are killer. Uh, Is it Ken Weber's book on performance? Uh, Maximum Entertainment? Yeah, Mm -hmm. great book. Great book. Um, And then 
the uh, Malcolm Gladwell books, Tipping Point and Outliers, were really great to me. You know, his concept of, uh, you know, 10,000 hours that you have to put in your time yes. before you can reap the rewards, like, couldn't be more true. And, I, it, you know, that kind of stuff happened to me and hopefully, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll you know, uh, bring itself to fruition more. But you got to have to put all that time in under the radar um, before you're ready for prime time, you know. And there's this mentality now that a lot of young kids will learn a trick and immediately put it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And and then you're putting yourself out there to this audience before you're ready. Like I, I, man, I don't know what I'd do if some of my early stuff was immortalized out there for anyone to see when they searched my name. You know, I just wasn't ready for it. Even some of my stuff, like even some of my Rachel Ray appearances, I kind of don't want to be on YouTube. Yeah. But if you can just hold out and and try to it, these days, it's hard to fly below the radar. But if you can hold out and you know stay on the stay on the down low until you really are great. Um, you know, you'll be duly rewarded for it. Then people, that's when people say like, oh, dude, this guy came out of nowhere. He's an overnight success. But really, you've been slaving away for years. Mm-hmm. But just you've been kind of, you've been keeping it, keeping it a little secret. And I think that that's, uh, you know, a good way for success. Yeah. I think it's uh, John Acuff who says, embrace your invisibility. Because yeah. when, when when you're unknown and when you're still small, that's when you can make your mistakes and and hone your craft and really get good at things. It's whenever you're you're, you're more of a bigger name where uh, things you're just breaking in or or different things like that would uh, would have more um, more impact on on your career. You know exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Couldn't agree more. So uh, links to these uh, – uh, j- just a quick uh, note to our listeners. Links to these resources and the show notes you'll be able to find on our website. Um, you'll be able to find that at SuccessfulPerformerCast.com slash Justin Willman. And that's J-U-S-T-I-N-W-I-L-L-M-A-N. And uh, so just a quick note to our listeners. And Justin, I'd like you to give one quick uh, piece of parting advice to our listeners and then tell us where we can find you online, plug your services, and if you have any products out. You bet, man. Um, well, I, you know, I kind of said it a little bit ago. I, I'd say never phone it in. Mm-hmm. Whether you're wh- – whether obviously at a show is one thing, but just in interacting with people before and after gigs, taking phone calls, even the calls that don't end up being sales, like just always be – present, give people your full attention, do the best show you can because you never know who's listening and who's watching and where that'll lead. And it just comes down to being, you know, having a, a brand of quality and, um, you know, treating everyone, you know, well. I, I think that obviously it's just a good way to, to live, period. But man, in a business sense, it really does very often come back in, uh, in spades in terms of, you know, success and people, you know, remembering you positively. And uh, you can find my stuff online, justinwillman.com. And my Twitter is at Justin underscore Willman. And my Instagram where I, you know, use that to promote tours and stuff is at Justin Willman, no underscore. That's annoying, I know. Justin (laughs) Willman on Twitter without the underscore is this college kid in in Colorado who's, you know, just being a dick. So uh, (laughs) what do you do? do? He just won't give it to me. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> negotiations are still underway, uh, but, Stay uh, but tuned. And, yeah. And, uh, Chris, thanks for having me on. This is, this podcast is something that I would have treasured to have around 10 years ago when I was really 
you know, trying to figure out how to run a business and how to do what I do as an entertainer and make it, you know, take it to the next level. So you're doing great stuff. And to have this kind of resource, a lot of people really treasure it. And I'm honored to be, uh, you know, one of the people involved. So thank you for including me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Justin, you've shared all kinds of great information that our listeners can use to help grow their performance businesses. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experience. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Take it easy. You too. Hey guys, this is Chris Shepard, your host, signing out. I just wanted to remind you of a couple of things here. Uh, be sure to visit our Facebook group and interact there. You can find that at SuccessfulPerformerCast.com slash FB group. And also don't forget to check out that free PDF show booking and debrief form. And you can find that at SuccessfulPerformerCast.com slash booking sheet. And also if there's any way that, I, that you think I can improve the show or anything uh, you would like to see in the future or anybody you'd like me to you know, try and get on the show as a guest, uh, just shoot me an email at ks at SuccessfulPerformerCast.com. Now, go out there and make your dreams happen. They remember the fact that they liked you, and when they're, those same people are later in a position of power at a different place, they'll bring you back and they'll hire you.